I've been just so encouraged uh, getting to be with everyone. Um, thank you for being so kind and gracious to me while I've been here and being willing to spend time with me uh, in the short time I've been here. You'll probably just need to get wiggled a little bit. But um, I really appreciate you being willing to spend time with me because uh, when, when I'm traveling to visit anywhere, uh, even though I'm, I'm glad to preach and serve through teaching, um, ultimately, I think so many things happen through individual conversations and connections that um, either enhance what's done through these public gatherings or even accomplish things that can't be done through public gatherings. Uh, and I guess just like the lesson, um, when we love one another in faith, there's, there's something that God is able to do through that love in a, a personal and intimate way that um, really enriches the lessons that we learn from the word and, and almost like puts them into a more real position in our minds and in our hearts. And so to, I'm thankful to God for, for this church. And um, I've been praying through this week that God would just help this to be something encouraging and it has been to me. So I appreciate that, um, that you've been so kind. Uh, and this lesson is one that has um, really challenged me a lot. Um, 1 Corinthians is a letter that I've, I've just been really drawn to. Um, so I love 2 Corinthians. Um, for the study that we had on Saturday, I mentioned it's my favorite book of the Bible. Um, and 1 Corinthians really enhances the progress that you see that has been made in 2 Corinthians. Uh, and it was really the last year. Um, I thought more and more about the first section of the letter. And through thinking about it, just kind of noticed that the first section may be one of the most challenging sections of the entire letter because there's so many lessons about this right here, loving the brethren by faith. And I want to make some introductory remarks about the, the church in Corinth um, leading into the lesson just to kind of enhance the impact of the things we're going to see. So Paul spent a year and a half with the church in Corinth. And for Paul, that's a really long time because Paul traveled a lot. And just for comparison, uh, the Thessalonians, Paul spent maybe like a month with the Thessalonians or so. And yet when he wrote 1 Thessalonians, like they were doing great. They were doing so well that there's not a single negative thing said to the church. Um, no reprimand or correction, just exhortations and praise. Uh, not the same with the church at Corinth. They were um, probably as messed up as a church can possibly be. Uh, they, were, they were just a total chaotic wreck of a group by the time this letter was written. And I think it's going to enhance this next slide when we see, I think, some of the things they were involved in. But Paul had invested in Corinth like more than any other church, really. And so you imagine when he finds out this is their current condition. So throughout 1 Corinthians, just piece by piece, um, he brings out that they're divided by pride. And he mentions that in chapter 1, verse 11. Uh, and a part of that being divided is that they're exalting and following men. You know, the, the famous verses, you know, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, right? So they're, they're following men, which still seems to be a problem in 2 Corinthians. Uh, they're actually not only not ashamed of sin, but it seems like they're like boasting in a lot of the things that they're doing, especially chapter 5. There was a man who had taken his father's wife and was in a sexual relationship with his father's wife. And they were just totally okay with that. And it was openly happening. Uh, in chapter 6, it mentions that they were actually taking each other to law courts and suing each other instead of just taking the wrong upon themselves. 
and they were engaged in just general sexual immorality. The end of chapter six, it mentions that uh, they were involved in prostitution. Um, in chapter uh, nine and ten, or eight through ten, really, um, he addresses the problem of their involvement in idolatry. So they were like going into idol temples, and they were using their knowledge that God alone is God as an excuse to participate in idol worship and idol idolatrous feasts. Um, so they're engaged like deeply in the culture around them in like totally the wrong way. Um, in chapter 11, they're not really partaking of the Lord's Supper. It's really just become their own common meal. So he has to completely redeliver that practice. In chapter 12, uh, 13 and 14, um, but especially chapter 14, we learn that they're abusing spiritual gifts, that they had miraculous abilities, and it's almost like they were fighting over the gift of speaking in tongues. They thought that was like the most impressive theatrical ability, and so they were really making a big show out of that. So their assemblies, it seems like, were just in total chaos because of that attitude. And surprisingly, in chapter 15, they had gone so far as to actually begin to deny the resurrection, which is like one of the most fundamental truths of our faith, right? So you think about Paul hears about the church being in this condition. He spent a year and a half investing in these brethren. And you imagine how deeply frustrated or just disappointed he could potentially be to hear about this. Um, You imagine the tone that this letter could potentially take, uh, depending on the kind of attitude Paul is going to apply. And Paul sees and addresses this condition with the view in chapter 1, 1 through 10. And I'm going to put all these things on the board. And here's what we're going to see. Paul's going to recognize that they've been sanctified in Christ to be saints. He's always thanking God for them. He recognizes that they're receivers of the grace of Christ, enriched in everything by God. They're not lacking anything. They've confirmed the testimony of Jesus. They're eagerly awaiting Jesus' coming, going to be confirmed blameless to the end and able to even obtain the perfect unity. Now, can you imagine, if we're to take this off completely, would you ever imagine that these things could be said about this church, this church on the left? This is how faith transforms our love for the brethren. I mean, it just radically changes our view of God's people and our ability to work with God's people, not only in a patient and merciful way, but in a powerfully direct way as well. Because what I really want to emphasize before we read anything Paul wasn't viewing the Corinthians through like rose-tinted glasses. You know, like, have you ever seen how the most um, misbehaved children tend to be the children where their parents like believe that they're little angels and are like incapable of doing wrong? Uh, Like I had a cousin when I was a kid who was just openly obnoxious and was always getting into trouble and would always frustrate everyone at every family get-together when I was a kid. And his mom would always say, oh, no, he's just a little angel, you know. But that was the most misbehaved child, right? So Paul's not looking at the church with the view on the right side in a way that dismisses what's on the left side. It actually becomes the key to having the confidence to patiently understand how each of these issues can be addressed, not by his own ability, but by drawing them to comprehend God in each of these problems to work towards a solution by the grace of God. So let's begin reading. And I'm just going to leave this up here and we're going to work through this this view that he's got on the right. I want to start with verses 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 through 3. 
Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes our brother to the church of God which is at Corinth to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus their Lord and ours grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ there, there's a lot of things that are uh, pretty interesting in this first section First thing is how Paul was bringing attention to their real identity in Christ. The first thing I want you to look at is verse 2. To the church of God which is at Corinth. They weren't really Corinthians. They weren't Roman citizens in Paul's eyes. They were the church of God. They belonged to God. And it just so happened that in their pilgrimage on earth, they just so happened to be located in the place of Corinth at that time. Right. The problem with this side is they weren't viewing themselves in that way as belonging to God. Paul really addresses that in chapters 1 through 6 where he mentions in chapter 3 and chapter 6, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? You've been bought with a price is what he says in chapter 6, therefore glorify God in your body, right? And these are truths that relate to their identity and belonging that they needed to be reminded of. So the question is, do you see yourself in that way? Like, are you an American citizen first? Are you a resident of Columbus, Mississippi first? Or is it that you just so happen to be here while primarily you are a part of the church of God that is at Columbus, Mississippi? Another interesting aspect of this is he mentions that they're saints by calling and sanctified in Christ Jesus. In John 17, Jesus prayed that we would be in the world, but not of the world. And I think that's the same idea of what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth. And it's interesting that even though this is their real condition right now, he still says that they've been sanctified. That'll make more sense when we kind of work through chapter 1 a little bit, a little bit further. But the idea of them being saints by calling, obviously they're not acting as saints right now, right? definitely couldn't say that about a church that's engaged engaged in all these different kinds of immoral behaviors right and so i think it's brilliant that he says that they're saints by calling you know the word christian which is the most common word that we identify ourselves as the word christian is used only three times in the entire new testament it's in acts 11 when they were in antioch they were first called christians in acts 26 I think it's Agrippa who said, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. And then in 1 Peter 4 is the last place where Peter mentions that if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Um, So three times. In your mind, just take a guess really quick. How many times do you think Christians are identified as saints in the New Testament? Just kind of guess in your mind. 61 times. Christians are referred to as saints in the New Testament. 61 times. You know, there's there's a lot of implications that come with a word like that. And I think it's important that when you think about your identity or the identity of those who are here, something that you may not think about very often is you are saints of God. Whether or not you're acting as a saint of God, a holy one by its literal definition, You are always, as a saint, called to act in a way consistent with that identity. So is that how you see yourself? Because I want to make the point that the way that Paul was able to approach this church and work with them in this way is because he understood their calling. And what we'll see at the end of the section we'll look at is he understands that God's mission and power 
was being fully directed towards fulfilling that calling because when they align themselves with that calling and when they when they consistently try to place themselves in the position of that calling, it's God who's working and he won't fail. So we're called to be holy, a holy people, right? And I think there's, there's more implication of application from the term saints compared to Christian, right? Like Christian, I think, is more of a, a title or description, whereas saint, I think of itself, people generally understand, holds some kind of idea of great integrity. Like think about the Catholic Church, and they misuse the term, but they've got all these like wild qualifications for how somebody could be considered a saint. Something not working? Look, Stephen, I just can't help it. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like falling, falling off yesterday, and then today it's disconnecting. <laughs> no, uh No, it's still going. <laughs> it's just going to be silent for a while. Who knows how long that was happening? <laughs> I'm just going to lose all the recordings. Um, but, but to the point, the, the Catholic Church will uh, make all of these wild qualifications because they at least understand there's something very high. There's something very high about this term saint, right? So they abuse the term because they see it in that way, but they don't understand like the scriptural reality of that, that saints aren't dead people who have done these very certain things. Saints are just simply the people of God who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. We need to see ourselves in that way. And it's important we think about brethren the way that God defines them as well and that we think about them in a way consistent with their, ide- with their identity. Um, and one last thing, that calling is something we're continuously striving towards, right? The reality is we can't escape that identity. As much as we might try, that's what God is always trying to call us into. Even if we choose to ignore that or live apart from that, that is who God calls us to be to the very point when we're baptized into Christ Jesus. He makes us into a holy one from that day forward. Um, and so we're striving towards that, but we're striving to encourage that in one another. So let's continue reading in verse 4, and I'm going to read through verse 9. And I want you to look for something particular in verse 4 through 9. Uh, Paul's just kind of very thoughtful in the way that he says the things that he says in these verses. He's going to start by talking about their past and he's going to define them some things about their past that they've clearly forgotten. And then he's going to bring up their present and he's going to name some things about their present circumstances that they've forgotten. And then he's going to talk about their future. He's going to talk about their past, present, and future. Try to pay attention to that as I read this. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord." So let's start with their past, and that's verse 4 through 6. 4 through 6. The first thing he mentions in verse 4, he's always thanking God for them. Isn't it interesting that Paul, again, you think about this is what he hears. That even with this, he's found things that have made him always able to thank God for brethren like this. I'm going to suggest something to you that I think is really important. 
I don't think we can interact with one another in the way God desires until this becomes our practice. And I think this really demonstrates, like we talked about last uh, Saturday in that Second Corinthians study, just the idea of the deep thoughtfulness that's behind God's every command and interaction with us, that's also behind Paul's interactions with the Corinthians. This challenges me to realize that behind my interacting with God's people, there ought to be the driving force of gratitude. Specific gratitude, not just general. Um, It's easy to say, well, thank you, God, for this person. Thank you, God, for this person and this person and this person. How hard do you think Paul would have to look at the Corinthians to have overfilled the list on the right compared to the list on the left? How, How carefully and how aggressively was he looking to find things to be thankful for? It's, it's, an, it's an aggressive gratitude. Paul actually begins most every letter this way. He'll tell like every church, basically, I'm always thanking God for you. I'm always praying for you. I'm telling you, Paul must have been a really busy guy in prayer to be able to truthfully say in all these different epistles, always, 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 always praying for you. Always thanking God for you. Um, so this might be the most convicting part of the lesson for you. I don't know. But I just have to ask if you're doing that. Um, Is that like a daily part of your prayer life is aggressively thanking God for the people here especially, right? Um, And again, there's a degree of interaction that that is able to come through that that I don't think can be achieved any other way. Uh, And I'll bring this up here. How this relates to Romans 4 Paul had looked at the condition of the Corinthians. And in relation to God's promise, he recognized that they were in a dead condition, in a sense. But in hope against hope, he chose to believe the things that God had already done in their lives, how he had already sanctified them. Despite appearances, he placed his confidence in God's work and God's promise, rather than letting the contradictory things of the flesh completely invalidate the power of what God had done and the truths of what he had already promised in relation to the Corinthians. That's powerful. Um, The next thing he mentions about them in verse 4, he mentions that God's grace was given to them in Christ Jesus. That's one of the most fundamental things I think that we share together is all of us have received the grace of God. I think one of the hardest works of our salvation, and I hope this will make sense, and I think I've referred to this a little bit in the lessons already, one of the most difficult works of our salvation is developing deeper belief in the things that God already did. Developing a deeper understanding and comprehension and response to the complete and perfect truths of what he did at the very moment I was saved. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1, I mentioned with the lesson in 1 Samuel 14 on Sunday that Paul in Ephesians like has these prayers about comprehending God's power. Well, in chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, before he mentions he's praying in verse 14, verses 1 through 13 are just a list of things that are eternally true. And I can reject those things. I can fall away from those things. But God has still done them. So in Ephesians, he mentions how we're adopted, how God has 
predestined a, a certain people of a certain heart condition to inherit the blessings of Christ. God has given the Holy Spirit as, as a seal and pledge of the promise that he's fully committed to his work. And again, I think Paul writing those things to the Corinthians, those things aren't said here in that way, but I think they're hidden behind his attitude, that he understands that those truths are the truths that the Corinthians have received all the same, right? Um, so they've received the grace of God in Christ Jesus. In verse 5, they were enriched in everything in all speech and all knowledge. I think there's two components of this, too. One, Paul was a pretty good teacher. And I don't think Paul had a habit of holding back anything profitable from the counsel of God. We know that from his speech to the Ephesian elders in, Ephes- in Acts chapter 20. So one thing is, Paul was very careful to make sure that they received everything, everything they needed, and that they were trained, that they had received what they needed as far as instruction, but that they were worked with to become complete in their knowledge. We need to be working to fundamentally equip one another. And I have to ask you this, is this an environment suitable for somebody like this? to be baptized, and let's say like they're, they're in these practices before they became a Christian, would this church be able to sustain and grow someone coming out of this condition? Um, we need to be able to know how to equip people. We, know, we need to know how to be able to fully teach someone, to be able to grow in their faith and know God. But secondly, I think beyond anyone else's interaction, getting back to our salvation there's a lot of indication in the New Testament where if I just, if I just live consistently with the truths that were at the, at the very forming of my faith, the conviction to be baptized for the remission of my sins, to die to myself, seeing my sin and knowing I need to respond to my sin and be saved, recognizing Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection as the source of my salvation. There's a lot of indication in the New Testament that those truths have a sufficiency within them to continue to complete my knowledge of God. And if you want to look more into that, 1 John is a really good book where John talks about how what you've heard is the same command from the beginning as what he's writing in 1 John. And I think he's referring to these developed truths of the most basic things of salvation. So I think just the fact that the Corinthians had been saved at all, if they would just reflect on those truths. Um, I mentioned this I mentioned this earlier. But just the idea of you've been bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Fundamental, that takes care of the problem of sexual immorality. Your body is a vessel for the Holy Spirit. Automatically, I should understand that God is jealous and my heart, my will, my mind must be fully given over to God. In 1 Corinthians 3, he references that more in the idea of the church as a whole. And I think the idea is the church needs to be pure. The church needs to be pure. If we are all stewards of the Holy Spirit, if the church is a temple in a sense, then the church needs to be a certain kind of group of people, right? And if we're saints, then we need to be behaving in a very set apart kind of way for God's purpose in the world that we interact with on a daily basis. So these fundamental truths carry very significant implications, right? So if, if we've been saved, if we simply just understand what God has really done, we're equipped in all knowledge 
to be able to grow and overcome even the most dire sin and temptation that Satan can bring us into. Um, and finally, in verse, uh, verse 6, the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. I think this is a key thing that really can compel Paul to have the confidence to patiently continue to give them instruction. And here's what I mean by that. If these Corinthians have proved the ability to have a heart to obey Christ at all, that heart's in there somewhere. It's in there somewhere. If they've ever lived, ever, in a way suitable to please God and receive the salvation promised through Christ, it's in there somewhere that they can return back to proper form and be the people that Paul knew they could be, right? It's possible. It might not seem possible from their condition, but all things are possible with God. All right, so their present condition. Verse 7. They're not lacking in any gift. They were really acting like they were. Um, Especially in chapter 14, when he starts addressing this kind of competitive attitude they had about speaking in tongues and acting as if that was the greatest gift. Uh, It's easy, I think, for us to relate to that. When we go back to chapter 12, um, turn there. This this isn't in my notes, but I I just thought of a really important verse that I think uh, will really help convey this idea. Look at verse 22. Chapter 12, verse 22. So he's talking about the the way that the body is working together and how the Holy Spirit has organized each piece of the body to be in its proper position. And verse 22 says, On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, and pay attention to this, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So I don't know if you've caught what Paul is saying here, but what he's saying is God has purposely organized his body where there will be members who seem like, by appearance, they're just not as as valuable as the others. Um, And I don't know if this is the case here, but... Every church I've attended, there's always people with really difficult personalities. And I don't mean like they're struggling with sin necessarily. I mean they're just really hard to connect with and get along with. Like maybe they're just really weird or they just have strange tastes, you know, or their sense of humor is just really strange and they're not actually funny, you know, Um, or they just get bothered by things no one else gets bothered by. Maybe they're just very sensitive and they've got a very sensitive conscience, but I've just, I've found every church I've attended has people that um, you can almost, not because, again, of any sin, but you can almost be ashamed of them and be like, well, you know, if we have a visitor, don't talk to that one. <laughs> you know, we want to kind of keep that one in the back and keep them tucked away, right? Or maybe it's this way. Um, oftentimes, people can almost feel like if they can't fulfill some visible role at the assembly, then they're not valuable, right? If they can't if they can't preach like so-and-so, or if they don't feel like they're very good at leading songs, well then, you know, it's about the only gifts that are available, so they just might not be very useful. We really got to get over that. Folks, our service and what we are as a body means so much more than this short period of time we're together. These periods are really just for the equipping 
of the greater gifts and work that happen out there, even with one another, right? And it's important that we learn, like, if you look back at verse 23, that we follow God's will. God's given us to be stewards of a responsibility here. That the ones that we, we would deem less honorable, we purposely bestow greater honor. That practice alone will transform any church. Go back to chapter 1. The idea is every member has a gift given by God, and not in some miraculous way necessarily, but in a way where we're all suitable and able to serve God in the fullest capacity he desires in very special and unique ways that are oftentimes exclusive to us. But I can choose to not use that or think that I'm not gifted because other people seem to be so much more developed, so much more useful, so much more talented, right? So I just, I found that to be a struggle for me and I've, I found that to be a very common thing. Um, secondly, in verse 7, he mentions that they're eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. I actually don't understand how he could say that. How do you look at a group like this and then think, wow, isn't it great how excited they are that Jesus is going to come again? Somewhere in there, Paul perceived, and I think in chapter 7, he addresses that they had written to him a letter. Somewhere, somewhere in all of this, they were actually excited about their faith and excited about Jesus. Now, all of this was still happening, and their excitement in no way justified any of this. But somewhere in there, there was some kind of excitement about their faith and learning and growing, even though it seems they weren't dealing with these problems. I think it's incredible that Paul actually found something in an active way, a present way, to say, this, this is great. And I praise you for that. And I want to suggest that Paul was going to have to think pretty hard to have found something like that to commend them for, right? I would be so distracted by all of these things, I wouldn't even try to think about anything positive like that. Wouldn't even try, wouldn't see it. Um, just Paul's love for these brethren and how humble he is in considering these things, it just astonishes me. You know, like, like how much humility and discipline does it take to get to the point where you can say something like that to a group like this? All right, so the future. Verse 8 and 9. Just like that last step of faith we talked about in Romans 4, when Paul thought about and comprehended the condition of the Corinthians, he let that sink in. Just like that last quality of Abraham's faith, he was fully assured that what God had promised, he was fully capable of performing. The faith of Abraham totally transforms the way that we're able to see the progress that can be made with brethren. Because um, I want you to see really how far he sees this is going to go. Look at verse 8 again. Who will confirm you to the end? And what's that next word? Just how confirmed will they be? blameless. How can that be possible? How can that be possible? To confirm them to the end blameless from this? When you read 2 Corinthians, they were well on their way. 
This was not going to happen magically. This was not going to happen because all of a sudden the Corinthians were going to read 1 Corinthians and say, wow, hey, does anybody else feel blameless? I feel pretty blameless. It wasn't going to happen like that. You see, because of Paul's understanding of God and his own faith, Paul was committed to getting his hands dirty here. Paul knew that he was going to have to both be willing to spend and be spent for the sake of their souls. In 2 Corinthians, one of the lessons from that is, in the letter, Paul's risking his reputation for them. He was going to have to be willing to lose his reputation. He was going to have to be willing to lose his energy, time, emotions. He was going to need to be willing to um, get frustrated. He was going to have to deal with the Corinthians examining him and thinking that he wasn't actually an apostle because some strangers were coming into Corinth with some boastful sense of confidence in themselves and captivate the Corinthians. And I'm telling you, what we see in verses 1 through 10, Paul was already willing to deal with all of that and just keep working. Now, would there be a time where if things continued as they were and there wasn't any sign of change, where Paul would no longer have any association with them? Yeah, absolutely. But they started changing. And those signs of progress to Paul were enough to keep working. And look at verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul talks about this more in chapter 3. But I think Paul really recognizes that ultimately, ultimately, as hard as this is for him, God is really the one working. And that, that gets back to the quality of faith in Abraham in Romans 4. That what Abraham perceived is as much as he had involvement in the promise of God toward its fulfillment, ultimately God was accomplishing insurmountably more than what Abraham was capable of. But that insurmountably more would be working through his submission. Kind of like uh, Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14, when he went to the garrison of the Philistines, he already knew that God would work marvelously through what he did to the point where it would be a victory for Israel in total, right? Because God worked far beyond anything Jonathan was able to do of himself, and he knew that God was able to do that. And Paul has a habit of talking to Christians like this, especially the Thessalonians. This is like um, kind of like a homework assignment if this would interest you, but in the, Thessalon- in the Thessalonian letters, All of Paul's prayers, he's actually praying that God will do things for the Thessalonians completely independent of him. So he prays like, I pray that God will do this, this, and this, and this, or that God will do this, this, and that. And there's like six or seven prayers between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, and literally every prayer, every one, he's praying that God will act towards the Thessalonians himself, independent of Paul, independent of every person. But he was equipping them by the power of God, right? Um, So last point in verse 10. I think this is probably the most shocking, shocking thing. This third point is, is how they're called into unity through faith and how unity is accomplished through faith. And I'll just read this one verse. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. 
So I know I just keep going back to this chart, but let's say you visit a congregation and you see these things and it's just a mess. You can see the immorality, like they begin partaking of the Lord's Supper and you're like, whoa, let's get out of here. You know, like this congregation is far gone, right? Um, would you ever think about visiting a congregation and, and like you leave, you walk out the door and you look to the person with you, if you're with someone, you say, wow, isn't it amazing what God could do with that church? Isn't it just amazing how faithful God is and how people like that can be changed from their condition? Isn't it amazing how brethren who are so far away can be unified still? Again, that, I'm telling you, that's not how I would think at all. I would leave there and talk about how their lampstand's far gone. Just no way. And oftentimes, maybe that's the truth. But I'm telling you, this church, their lampstand wasn't gone yet. God was wanting someone. Someone just willing to work. Someone willing to speak the truth in love. Someone willing to be patient to help the church to grow into the very things that Paul acknowledged God was still able to perform. So is this, is this kind of unity possible with a church like Corinth? Go to Jeremiah 17. This is one of my favorite parts of the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 17. This may not seem like it'll relate, but it really does. And I just, I just think this is just so incredible. Jeremiah 17. Now, Jeremiah 1 through 20. Jeremiah talks to God in his own book more than any other prophetic book. It's, it's a fascinating study going through Jeremiah 1 through 20 and marking in your Bible all the places where Jeremiah talks. In verses 12 through 18, Jeremiah is talking. Look at verse 16 through 18. I'm not going to read those verses, but if you look in the middle of, middle of verse 16, he's saying like, I haven't hurried away from you. I haven't longed for the day of destruction. You know what was in my mouth when I was in your presence. In verse 17, don't be a terror to me. You're my refuge in the day of disaster. Now look at verse 18. Let those who persecute me be put to shame. But as for me, let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring on them a day of disaster and crush them with twofold destruction. I'm telling you, Jeremiah was absolutely correct in every single one of those words. God had shown Jeremiah by this time and Jeremiah had discovered just how evil these people were. And he was teaching the people day after day, God is going to destroy you if you don't repent. You're betraying God's covenant. You're so far gone. He's at the last straw. Repent, repent, repent. Nothing was happening. And the people were looking at Jeremiah and thinking like, wow, what a lunatic. I mean, nothing's happening. Everything's fine. And there's just this one guy all by himself preaching doom and gloom while all these other people prophesying in the name of the Lord are saying, Whoa, 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 peace. Peace is in the land. And so Jeremiah is hastening this day because of the urgency. Wickedness has dominated Judah by this time. The nation is just totally gone. And he's suffering constantly for it. And they're the ones who are fine. Now look at verse 19. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and stand in the public gates. Mind you, I think God said this as soon as Jeremiah was done talking in verse 18. Go and stand in the public gate, through which the kings of Judah come in and go out, as well as in the gates of Jerusalem, and say to them, Listen to the word of the Lord, kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who come in through the gate, these gates. 
Thus says the Lord, Take heed for yourselves. Do not carry any load on the Sabbath or day or bring in anything, bring anything in through the gates of Jerusalem. You shall not bring a load out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your forefathers. Yet they did not listen or incline their ears, but stiffened their necks in order not to listen or take correction. But it will come about if you listen attentively to me, declares the Lord, to bring in no load, to bring no load in through the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but to keep the Sabbath day holy by doing no work on it. Then there will come in through the gates of this, of this, of this city, kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city will be inhabited forever. They will come in from the cities of Judah and from the environs of Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the lowland, from the hill country and the, and the Negev, bringing burnt offerings, sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, and bringing sacrifices of thanksgivings to the house of the Lord. But if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy by, by not carrying a load and coming in through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it will devour the palaces of Jerusalem and not be quenched. I want you to think about how powerful this would be for Jeremiah. Jeremiah is just getting worn out, and rightfully so. This, this was wearing God out. Jeremiah is saying, bring on them the day of destruction. It's time. The time is now. This cannot continue. God says, go in the gates of Jerusalem where everybody is. And you tell them, if they'll just keep the Sabbath, and that's it, this city will never be destroyed. And you tell them, not only will this city never be destroyed, but all the borders are going to be restored. And not just that, the zeal of the nation will be so renewed, they're going to bring sacrifices of every kind from every place where there are the borders of Israel. If I was Jeremiah, I would think, no, no, that's not possible. They're just, they're too far gone now. That's, it's not possible. So was it? Was it, was it impossible? Was God just saying stuff? trying to bribe them by speaking half-truths? Or if they just, just kept the Sabbath, would he really do these things for the nation? You know what justified God is they weren't even willing to do that. So that city was destroyed. You think about what that says about the church at Corinth. Does the condition we put ourselves in nullify the power of God to completely fulfill his promises. If we'll just make a movement. So I think what God was saying is if, if they'll make the movement to just keep the Sabbath, wow. What I will do will just totally isolate the glory of that heart and we're going to work from there, right? But they wouldn't even do that. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 12. In verse 4 of Jeremiah 12, Jeremiah is talking again. And he's saying similar things to chapter 17. And mind you, this is earlier. And he's basically saying, how long is the land going to keep withering away? Because the unfaithfulness of the people was directly connected to the condition of the land. So God was slowly deteriorating the land through their unfaithfulness. And Jeremiah says, God, how long are you going to let this happen? How long is wickedness going to decay everything and rot everything? The people are unrepentant and you can do it. 
So why is it continuing to be this way? And in verse 5, if you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, then how can you compete with horses? If you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers and the household of your father, even they have dwelt tre- dealt treacherously with you. Even they have cried aloud after you. Do not believe them, although they may say nice things to you. God's response to Jeremiah is basically, toughen up, man. If you think this is bad, it's not gotten bad yet. This was in the reign of Josiah, by the way. Greatest, one of the greatest kings who'd ever lived in Israel. And it was going to get a lot worse after Josiah died. But basically in verse 5, when he says, if you've run with footmen and tired out, how can you compete with horses? What he's saying is, if, if this is too much, well, forget about it. What, what's coming, you're just going to give up then. Wouldn't you think that God, when Jeremiah would get frustrated, say, now, now, I know. You know, I know it's tough. And maybe let me see if I can ease that burden on you a little bit. God says, it's going to get a lot worse. And if you can't handle that, you can't handle it. One, we really, really need to be ready to work hard with our brethren. God's response to Jeremiah, I think, really shows how God was committed to the nation in ways that Jeremiah just really didn't comprehend at the time. Same with Jeremiah 17. We really need to be ready to work hard with our brethren, really. We really need to be committed. Um, but the second part of this, it, this, is, this is hard. It's hard to figure this out. I always, always give up on my brethren before God does. Always. Every time. You think about some of the churches in Revelation, just like this. It's crazy things happening. And God says, repent, knowing that that's exactly what they can do. And again, we all know there's a point where, you know, you've got to draw lines and you can no longer extend the right hand of fellowship. That, that is a very real thing. But the reality is, I'm just like Jeremiah and I really don't understand. I really don't. Just how far God is willing to go with his people. I just don't get it. But Paul did. And go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I think you're beginning to see why this just first section of 1 Corinthians is so deeply challenging. How unified did Paul believe they could become? How unified? You notice again he says that they all agree that there be no division, that they be made complete in the same mind and same judgment. That was possible. They were going to have to have some really direct and hard conversations with each other. I mean, how do you go from defiling the Lord's Supper to actually partaking of it in the right way again when there are people who enjoy doing it that way? How do you get to the point of accepting the resurrection when people have gone to the place of denying it? How do you stop people from following after men and humbling themselves? How, do you, how does that happen? Well, things are going to have to get tense. And there's going to need to be probably multiple conversations happening over a really long period of time, over and over again. And those conversations aren't going to happen unless I have Paul's view in chapter 1, 1 through 10. Or I'll be too timid to bring up what needs to be brought up. I won't have the confidence that if I just 
die to myself and say what needs to be said, that God will work. Things will happen. Not right away. It's not going to be easy. But God can do it. Um, Things don't seem to be possible when we look too much at ourselves and not enough at God's promise and power. Um, Like, I would say, verse 10, if I was even looking at the most encouraging congregations I personally know, if I was even looking at them, I would read that verse and still say, well, not really. Like, I see what he's saying, but I mean, not really. Like, Paul can't really mean what he's saying. I mean, we can, like, get pretty united, but, you know, not really what he's saying. Well, if I think that way, where am I really putting my faith? Am I really letting God's promise stand? And all the parts of his word and command Or am I looking too much at what contradicts hope and letting that contradict the power of God's promise? So this isn't really possible if my focus is on the weakness and the frailty and the divisions of people. It's really only possible if I will just put my complete confidence in what God can do through Jesus Christ. And I think that really really is what it means when he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he's, he's not saying, like, the name Jesus, like it's just some magic word. You know, like some people, they'll teach in, like, churches in the world, you know, the name of Jesus is, like, your key word to success. I cast you out of the name of Jesus, you know, like that kind of thing. That's not what he's talking about, right? What he's saying is, like, in the accurate understanding and confidence we have in the true person of Jesus, the things he promises always hold true to those who have faith in them. So, this is complicated. This is a really hard lesson. I don't have these things figured out, right? But they're still there and they're still true. And so I just commend this to you. This has been a very encouraging meeting. I appreciate your willingness to listen and to talk about these things. Um, I know that some of these applications are hard and really require more thought, but I would really encourage you to continue to dwell on them. All of these things are just fundamental and so important to our faith. Um, And if if you're here and you need the help of this church in any way, any way at all, please come forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.